Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Founder University podcast. We have two amazing talks for you today. The first one is all about product design and how you can build a loved product. Part one, showing you how to write out your designs. Part two, create rough wireframes of your designs. And number three, create more polished final versions of that design. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy, steps one, two, and three. You'll also learn UI and UX, that's user interface and user experience, best practices for when you design your product. After that, we're going to talk to our friends at LinkedIn, and they're going to talk about B2B marketing and ads. This is where you're trying to capture business leads on LinkedIn. So you're going to learn what North Star metric you should pay attention to when you're making ads and how to create a bottoms-up approach to ad planning. Finally, they're going to teach you some tips on creating high-performing ads on LinkedIn's ad platform. All right, let's get into it. All tactical, all the time, Founder University. Hey there, my name is Scott, and I'm a partner at a branding studio, Lunar, and today we're going to talk about how to design love products. Let's dive into it. So first, are you ready for a scary truth? And this is that 88% of online consumers are less likely to return to a site after just one bad experience. So what does that mean for us looking at the positive side of design? Is that the ultimate goal of us to design well is to solve someone's problem in an enjoyable way. So just creating good, beautiful designs by themselves is just art. However, it should solve a business problem. And so let's dive back into why that matters a little more. First is that 73% of mobile app users churn after just 90 days on average. And this is typically because it doesn't solve their problem for the long term. It was nice at first, but then it died off. Next is that first impressions are 94% design related. So when someone comes to your site, you have about seven seconds for them to see if what they're looking for is right and if it looks like it can be trusted. And then if they don't find what they're looking for, they'll bounce. And finally, 38% of users will stop engaging if the website's content or layout is unattractive. Again, spoiler alert with this is that people do judge a book by its cover. So looking at how do we design products, you probably have seen this quote before from Reid Hoffman, which is, if you're not embarrassed by the first version of your product that you've launched too late. And that means that if you are building this beautiful design and you never launch, then that's probably not as important as just getting out the door and get real feedback from users. So with the goal that we've seen that design matters a ton, but also launching matters more, how do we do both? The way that we do that is what everybody's familiar with, which is starting with the MVP. So here, step one, we design a smaller focused piece. And this is something we can test and make sure that it's solving a real problem in an enjoyable way. And then from there, as we grow, then we can scale and improve as we go on. And that's where we can build out, hire more people, and then make the design like we actually want it to be. So I'm going to cover a three-part framework for what I use for designing uh, great user experiences and beautiful designs. And I've done this at large banks, and I've done this at startups, and the same process works for both. So step one is I always start with text-based requirements. And this is simply just what you see in the little thumbnail, if you can see that, which is just text It's saying, when I go to log in, here's what I expect should happen. When I go to upload a photo, here's what I expect should happen. And I usually stick to something like Notion or Google Docs for that. 
Next is that I go into rough wireframes and this could be a mix of a couple of different layouts. This is something like sticky notes, whiteboards, or honestly just using a napkin sketch does the job. And then finally, we go into making polished designs. My favorite is Figma, but you can use a bunch of other tools to essentially create the pixel perfect designs that will be handed off to your development team. So let's dive into each. The first one, text-based requirements. And again, this is how I start every single product. And I always do this with clients as well. So when we talk about that they want to release a new feature, I'll start with just text. And the, the test that I use for this too, which I'll cover a little later is, can you explain this over the phone to someone? So if you say, hey, at this screen, it needs to do this. And again, it's, it's more focused on the function side. So how I do that is I start with the summary statement, which is specific group of people have X problem and it would be, and they would be willing to pay Y dollars to solve it by, and then whatever your solution is. Again, this is a business problem that we're solving through design. Second part is I'd focus on the problem. I really wanna make sure that I'm focused on solving a real problem, not creating a solution in search of a problem. And then finally with this is I would focus on the personas. So who are these people that we're solving their problems for? And then next I'd move on to what is the home run for them? So they, they have a problem, but what would it actually be for them to have a solution that they wanna tell somebody about? And then I go into the requirements. And this is what I mentioned earlier is that I go specifically down step-by-step step of here's what I expect at each stage. And with this, I'd speak to the, the function versus this is how it should look. So if I say, hey, they should log in and then continue to the next step, I didn't specify that the buttons should be, look like this or the color should be this. None of that really matters at this stage. It's simply focused on function. And I typically use Notion for that, but you can use Google Docs, Word, anything with just text. And to illustrate why this matters, if we take a simple login screen like this, so this is a, say, create your account. It might look pretty simple, we've all seen this, but if you're going to write out each step of how this functions, you might pull out some things like this. Name, do you need first and last? Do you need both? Is it a required field or is it optional? What about email? What happens if they misspell it? They misspell Gmail and how do you verify that? What message do you put under it? Is it really static, like incorrect information? Or do you say, hey, try again? What about are there password requirements? Do you require 27 characters? Do you require a special character? Or are you going to let them put in whatever they want? What's the sign-in text for the button? Should that be get started, sign in, let's go? What about social logins? What happens after they sign in? That's the next step that's really important. And what about a confirmation email? There's a lot with this too. Of once you sign up, do you receive one? How, what software, what provider is it through? What's the text? Who is it from? All of those things need to be defined. Next, step two, and there's two parts to this one. I start with journey mapping. So I, I outline the experience from their shoes. And the first step with this is to make a, a realistic persona. So as you'll see on the side with the visuals, I use essential digital sticky notes and um, I use FigJam or Envision as a great tool called Freehand. And this is where I essentially make digital sticky notes and I say, person A, let's call him Sam. Sam wants to try to uh, go downtown from where he's at at his apartment. 
So he pulls out his phone and he opens an app, happens to be the Uber app. And so he puts in the destination. And so if I were to build out the Uber app, I would just simply say what he's doing almost as if I were to watch a movie of this scene and everything is done by stickies. And that's where we map. Again, this is a, they do this, then they do that. And then they also, they may be thinking here, here's what they're frustrated by. Here's how I can make a home run for them. Some software I use again is Envision app, Freehand, uh, FigJam, Miro. <laughs> you could use simply just a whiteboard with paper or sticky notes. And then next, the second part of step two is the wireframes. And in short, this is simply just boxes and lines that communicate what all those steps are. And as you'll see from these images again, these are real ones that I've used and they are ugly and that's by design. So here, make ugly, quick sketches. You should not at this stage, from my perspective, focus on making really polished wireframes. At this point, they're just to focus on what is the experience going to be like. And I've found I get better feedback on the experience if I make the wireframes ugly, because as soon as I start making them look good, people are gonna focus on, well, the button styles don't look like that. What color is gonna be here? What mock-up will be in this place? I don't care about that at this point. I just need to focus on, does it solve the problem? in an enjoyable way. Focus on this again. I use grayscale only. I don't even use any color when I do it. Uh, I, or I should say, unless you see here, uh, there's colors, but it's more to illustrate that these are different objects, but that's it, not anything to do with aesthetics. I again use Envision app or Freehand, FigJam, Miro, use a whiteboard or paper, napkin, any of those work. Next is jumping into the polish design. This is what you came for. So make development ready designs. And something that designers have to learn too is that we as designers wanna make everything pixel perfect. We work on our eight pixel grid and everything is just beautiful. Well, translating that to the internet where developers have to account for desktop, tablet, mobile, constantly changing screen sizes that we have. It's never going to be exactly pixel perfect, but developers are getting better at doing it that way. So my first step, is I will build around five primary screens. So let's say again, if it's Uber is your app, I'd say probably one of the main screens is me putting in my address to where I'm gonna go. And then the next, next screen might be what happens if I'm actively driving? And then maybe the other key screen is what happens when I'm done with it? And so that's about three screens. And if I were to do that, I would have some sort of map layout. I'd have inputs to be able to put in for my current address, my destination address, and then what happens when it's actively going. And what that does is I start building these key screens and it gives me buttons, inputs, map, some sort of icon for a vehicle status. And I kind of create a rough hodgepodge of all these styles that I like. And that will show me all the styles that I will need. And then from there, I'll pull the rest of the components from ideally a really well-defined UI library. So a UI library is essentially a, a set of buttons and colors and fonts and other components like inputs and dropdowns and every other thing you can think about for software design. Here, you wanna just pull from it ideally and keep reusing the same components as opposed to every single screen. You do not want to create a, a new button style every single time you go. You wanna have a primary, secondary, and maybe tertiary options there. And then finally is that I would make sure that I'd have all those screens built out for all of the, or all the layouts built out for all the screens that I'll need. So if I have a standard app, you probably have to take in consideration of desktop, tablet, and mobile screens. And with this, 
make sure that it's really clear about here's a desktop version, here's a tablet, here's the mobile, because when developers go to build it, they're going to ask those questions about well, how does this scale down? Is the picture to the left still or in the text to the right? Or does it shift when it's on mobile? Design that all out, make your developers happy. To give you a quick picture of TimeWell, which is an app that I've designed, these are the screens that I've used. I've cleaned this up since, but you can see here are all the variations of the different screens I've had to use. So like I mentioned before, if you're creating an account, what happens if you put in the wrong email? I have that out. Or what happens if you're uploading a photo? What happens if it's in progress uploading? What happens if there's an error? I have to think about all of those different states to design and see desktop, tablet, mobile, all these breakpoints. And the simple part of this is that every single interaction has to be designed or at least talked about. So when we compare now what you're seeing here, which is the design side to the text side of here's what should happen function-wise, and then you have the same thing mapped for here's how it, those same functions look, you have a really great way to design and develop a really great product. If I can give you one tip is as you are starting to build out your platform, just start with a design system or UI library. These are pre-built buttons, colors, fonts, dropdowns, navigation, uh, menus. It, it's all the pieces that you'll need to start with. Um, and they're usually like the ones I have listed here are around a hundred bucks. And it is probably the best money you could spend when you're starting to build out. Don't waste time building buttons from scratch when you could use great ones. The reason for this is that people are going to judge your app just by glancing at it in a second. And if it doesn't look good, they're not going to trust it. So I'd say first version, just go with somebody else's pre-built framework. It's kind of like using somebody else's Lego blocks just to start there. Finally, we're going to go through a speed round of resources here and then some do's and don'ts for design. So if you are looking to build out your designs and uh, to make sure that they look good, I have a bunch of resources here. I'll go ahead and check those out. So let's jump right in to our speed round. So UI UX, which also means user interface and user experience best practices. So what it looks like when it how it functions. These are pulled from refactoring UI, which I'd recommend looking at their resources as well. First one is start with what feels like too much white space. As you'll see on the side, I find this a lot with developers is that they build everything really packed together. You want to make sure that it breathes and that your eye can scan. People don't read, they scan. And so you want to give them the ability to see sections really quickly. And then it also just adds more air to, the, to your screens. Next is the Goldilocks spacing. So you might have too tight, you might have too big, and both feel really cheap. But if you blend it somewhere in the middle, it'll feel just about right. Again, using that eight pixel grid is really great. Hierarchy. You'll see here that as you squint your eyes, a lot of times you can find what is the, the most important thing to look at. So as I scan the left one, every all the fonts are kind of the same. There's not a lot of weight, but as I look at the right one, they've highlighted and pulled and made some fonts thinner and some wider. So the weights are thicker or thinner. And then you'll find that some text is larger and smaller. Again, you want to help them scan for the most important things. Here, simplify when possible. On the left side, this is really common to see of something like name and then their actual name, job title and their actual job title. When in reality, we know what a phone number is. and We don't need to specify what phone and the actual number. So on the right side, you'll see, just put in the value. So her name, her, 
her position, her email, her phone number. Next is prioritize values. So here, if you look at the left screen, chances are you'll see heart rate first. That's not what's actually most important. The most important thing is in context of this app is probably 82 beats per minute. And here's a clear primary action. So as you look on the left, chances are you'll see the red button first. If you want to position options to somebody, you do not want to put delete first. Uh, most of the time, you want to put what is a positive way to interact with your products. And so here you'd want to do what's on the right, which is you'll see first is publish and then edit and then delete. And these you'll also see focus into the next one, which are to set up the hierarchy of styles correctly. So you'll have a primary button, a secondary button, and a tertiary button. And I would keep to one of these styles. So these three rows are different styles that I would use for an app. So I wouldn't intermix these. So I'd keep a blue button that's solid. I would have an outlined one and then maybe a link or it could have some sort of bare option. And you'll see those down below. Couple more. Don't stretch your content too wide. If you're like me and you've accidentally booked a movie theater ticket too late, you might have to sit up front and you can't see without turning your head side to side. That's essentially what we're doing here when we put our text or our content too wide or even goes completely off the screen. So keep it to a reasonable amount. Similarly is with text. You can keep paragraphs between 45 to 75 characters. And with text, more and more people, again, don't read. So keep it to where it's really skimmable. Not too thin, but in that sweet spot. And last one here is to group your text and your images in context. So as you'll see on the left side, there's the, the title. It says the one size fits all platform. And then the need is simple. And there's the subtext. It goes as wide as the next content below. When in reality, this is grouped above to the other text. And so make sure that all of your content groups together. So with that, Again, I'm a partner at a studio called Lunar. And if you're at a certain spot where you are looking to raise a round or go to the next stage, we'd love to have a conversation. So your customers do judge your book by its cover. And we want to help you uncover the truths about that, how you can be more successful. Also, I am a founder. So I'm in Jason's portfolio at launch. I did that through TimeWell. TimeWell is a platform where you can save family memories with your voice. I'd love for you to check it out. With that, thank you so much for your time. Please keep me up to date with your designs. Thanks so much. As I give this talk in the fall of 2022, the startup ecosystem is recalibrating from a growth at all costs mindset to one of responsible growth. And while those are different approaches, they're both in service of the same thing, growth. Today's conversation is for early stage founders and executives who are ready to grow their company's revenue and customer bases. You've launched your minimally viable product, you have a hunch on what your ideal customer profile is, and you've tapped your first degree network through founder sales. Paid marketing is the next step. And over the following 10 minutes, I'll share several fundamental frameworks that I've seen the fastest growing B2B startups implement. I'm Tom Eschbacher, and I've been able to observe this through building and growing our LinkedIn Marketing for Startups group. We now partner with about 1,200 startups every year to help them build their foundational marketing strategies on our platform. And what we've seen over the past few years is a shift in the type of companies we're working with. As early stage round sizes increased everywhere, expectations and revenue benchmarks began to creep forward. Where seed rounds used to primarily be around improving MVPs, investors are now looking at ARR, year-over-year -year growth rates, and all sorts of revenue metrics for early stage companies. 
LinkedIn's the leading B2B advertising platform in the world. So I feel confident in saying that startups are moving to paid advertising earlier. In a recent study, we found that almost 40% of seed stage companies had at least one lead gen campaign running on LinkedIn. If it's not already, advertising will become part of your company's growth strategy. And as the founder, you play a critical role in ensuring your startup thinks about it the right way. These three frameworks will help you. You're all familiar with the idea of North Star metrics on the product side, but you'd be surprised how infrequently startups have one when it comes to marketing. When you begin considering advertising, the first question to ask is, why? Why are we advertising? And now here are three popular bad answers. To build awareness, to get people to visit our website, and to get more leads. That last one might surprise you, but consider walking into your next funding pitch and presenting a slide that says, we generated 10,000 leads last quarter. Instead of the applause you might be expecting, you'll get a nonplussed reaction with a, and what happened to them, response from the investor. Things like site visits and leads generated might be key performance indicators, but do not confuse them with your North Star metric. You need to measure what matters, and that's why your North Star metric for marketing should connect to business outcomes. It should have a dollar sign appended to it, either in terms of sourced pipeline or influenced revenue. Now, many, if not most, startups struggle to measure through the funnel, but the earlier that founders, CEOs, and heads of finance can understand the value marketing can create, the more alignment you'll have internally on how to invest in it. I suggest taking a bottoms-up approach to planning. This slide depicts a planning framework that begins with your North Star metric. For the purposes of this example, I've made that closed one revenue. From there, you need to determine what pipeline coverage you're looking for. SaaS companies typically range from three to five X based on their close rates. Of that pipeline coverage, how much do you need or want marketing to contribute? Once you get that number, we can move into the sales funnel. And to do that, we divide your average customer value into the marketing source pipeline so we can back into the number of opportunities we'll need to generate. And from there, we can apply conversion rates so you can work up to SQL, MQL, and ultimately leads. Now, this is way easier said than done and there's a ton of nuance involved, but this is how you should be thinking. Connecting your North Star metric to a marketing KPI allows you to begin strategy and channel planning, which will lead us into our second framework. You might be familiar with the term demand generation, but we encourage startup marketers to think of a demand creation and demand capture framework. The first thing most startups want to do for good reason is capture low-hanging fruit. What is the low-hanging fruit? It's the high intent in-market audiences. Where do you find them? Mostly on search. So buy your name and bid on your keywords. This will get you eyeballs from buyers who are in the research phase, but you might be too late to the party. Where else can you find them? your sales team, and your website. So chances are your sales and your sales ops leads have identified a group of accounts they want to target, maybe even have contacts. You should also be retargeting people who are visiting your website. For a sales or marketing-led company, in the demand capture phase, you'll be converting these people to demo requests. And that's just demand capture, but it's not even half the story. In fact, it's way less than half the story. LinkedIn sponsors a think tank called the B2B Institute, whose recent research on the 95-5 rule states that at any given time, only 5% of buyers are in market. 
And in tough economic climates, when software buying budgets tighten up, that might look more like 99 to 1. So it would be a mistake to focus all your efforts on that 5% or the 1%. Once you've begun to see back-end traction with your ABM and retargeting audiences, it's time to create demand among the out-of-market audience. This phase of your marketing approach broadens your target audience beyond your decision makers to your ICP buying committee. You're looking to build awareness and interest, typically through a lead magnet like a, like a white paper, an ebook, or a webinar where the contact submits their information. In addition to LinkedIn, content syndication can be an effective channel for this strategy, though you want to be conscious of lead quality there. You then nurture these leads through email marketing, LinkedIn, and display until their lead score accumulates to signal they're in market and now ready for demand capture. I'm putting up some tactical tips on how to execute this on LinkedIn. With over 850 million members and unmatched self-reported bizographic data, LinkedIn enables you to reach your ICP accurately and at scale. So the key unlocks here are adding our insight tag to your site. That will help you get rich audience insights and also begin to build those retargeting segments that are so important during the demand capture phase. Also, you'll want to append a lead gen form to your ads. Lead gen forms increase lead volume and improve lead quality by simplifying the submission process. Once a contact clicks on your ad, a pre-filled lead gen form pops up and enables them to easily pass their information on. This drives 5x conversion rate over website forms. So demand creation is best executed if our third and final framework is close at mind. Explore and exploit. A lot of the seed and series A companies we work with are operating at about 80% confidence in their ICP. And as you begin your early advertising efforts, make sure you're gaining validated learnings on the audiences that are engaging with your company. LinkedIn provides a slew of detailed insights that can hone your understanding of your ideal customer profile specifying which seniority levels and job titles are most receptive within the different industries or company sizes you're engaging. So that's how you're exploring your audience, but also explore messaging. What value propositions resonate best with these respective groups? Explore then exploit. Another call out here is that your advertising should be always on. Once you're in, be in. We spoke about it before with the 95-5 rule, most of your audience is going to be out of market, so you should be creating demand with them for when they do move in market. Two additional points when it comes to the exploit portion of this framework, and they apply to sales and marketing alignment. This is so crucial and is actually an area where startups with their smaller size have advantages over larger incumbents. First, you want to have a really tight MQL to SQL conversion rate. If sales is repeatedly rejecting your MQLs, it means your MQL definition isn't stringent enough. Get with your sales counterpart, make it tighter. You want the sales team to be thrilled to get a marketing source lead. And second, they should be so thrilled that they're reaching out instantly or as close to instantly as possible. Someone just submitted their information to request a demo, strike while the iron is hot. Track your time to touch and work to get it as short as possible. Can you consistently follow up with leads in 10 minutes? That's a great way to exploit their interest. Let's put the three frameworks together in one unified theory of B2B startups advertising. First, you'll explore your audiences, explore different messaging during the demand creation phase. In demand capture, you're moving leads to MQLs 
and then exploiting that interest through a tight sales and marketing alignment that moves them consistently and swiftly into and through your sales funnel, all the way to their impact on your North Star metric, which again, is why you're doing any of this in the first place. Thanks for your time today. For anyone interested in learning more about how startups see success with LinkedIn advertising, please visit us at linkedin.com slash startups. All right, everybody, that's going to wrap up today's episode. If you want more tactical content, that's what we do here at Founding University, things that you can apply at your startup today, or even a mid-sized or large company, maybe you're at a big company, be sure to hit subscribe on YouTube or on your favorite podcast player. And if you've got an MVP or an idea and you want to build it into a company, we have a 12-week Founder University program. You can apply to it, founder.university slash apply. We've invested $25,000 into each of about 20 companies now to help them grow. And that's why we do Founder University. We want to meet founders early and get to know them. We trade all this knowledge to the founders. And sometimes they uh, turn them into very big companies and they let us invest a little bit of money in their companies, which we love uh, to be in partnership with founders. So again, you can apply for the upcoming cohort at founder.university slash apply. And if you want to present your own tactical talk here on this pod and you think you got what it takes, you can submit your presentation at founder.university slash submit. Yeah, just make a little presentation, send it to us. If it's really good, you might just get that phone call. Okay, we'll see you next time.